Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production, where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, RPA is proud to present Aaron's Horror Show with Aaron Frail. This is Jason Witter, author, illustrator of Tiniest Vampire and Monsters Eating Ice Cream, and you are listening to Aaron's Horror Show. listening to Aaron's Horror Show, and I'm your host, Aaron Frail. We get to read fiction on the show and talk about some movies, books, you name it. If you like what I do here, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com forward slash Aaron Frail. You'll get some books and other cool stuff for your support. Go ahead and also reach out to me at Aaron's Horror Show at gmail.com, Aaron Horror Show on Twitter, or Aaron's Horror Show on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy. Welcome to Aaron's Horror Show, and I'm your host, Aaron Frail. We got more Touristic Chronicles. All right, here's the big heist. They're going to steal the cool prototype from Earth. Uh, so let's go ahead and see what happens next, shall we? The Citronite fell out of what Hayden liked to call warp speed just outside the Sol blockade in the Oort cloud at the furthest reaches of the solar system. Comets and other space drunk were vaporized as soon as it crossed the threshold to what was known as the Blast Sphere. To protect Earth from long-range attacks like flinging an asteroid in its direction or sending deep space nukes, the entire solar system was being orbited by little spheres that would coordinate their attacks to blast anything that got too close. As a consequence, comets, meteor showers, and all the sorts of cosmic phenomenon were a thing of the past, except a few nighttime spectacles here and there, like the famous Halley's Comet replica that streaked through the sky for the sake of tradition and festivity, there was no stray objects in the inner solar system because of the defense network. The blast sphere would pose a problem getting the prototype out of the system, but not an insurmountable one, Maker assured them. They flew through the Oort cloud to the edge of the blast sphere and hailed the sole port on the dwarf planet of Pluto on the other side of the destructive floating spheres. The port authorities requested their docking files, and Cal transmitted a fake set she had purchased at a premium. Their entry was logged as a free market exploration data exchange vessel. Earth's prime import and export was information and ideas. Most of the entertainment and news networks of the galaxy were located on Earth. Even though Hayden liked to call them propaganda networks, the leading scientific research outfits were also on Earth. It wasn't uncommon for independent science vessels like Cal's Citronite to revive on Earth and attempt to sell their collected data to the highest bidder. If a science vessel 
had a breaking story or had explored a previously unknown star system, each piece of information collected would be sold for a price. Biotech firms would pay top dollar for samples of previously unknown life, especially if the life had measurable medical properties, since most independent researchers didn't have the funds to create large-scale reproductions of the beneficial organisms, they come to Earth and sell their data. If they were skilled negotiators, they could get a cut. However, since most scientists were in it for the science, they usually get screwed on the business end. For every independent citronite that left Earth loaded with cash, there was a citronite that would be coming away with little to nothing. But the winners were important to the component to the human society. The stories of people who lost everything were forgotten, and that's why the people kept coming to trade with Earth. Unlike many cultures of the universe, anyone could make money on Earth. The UPA law made it clear that wealth and earning weren't restricted to humans. However, since humans were in the game the longest and had already entrenched in the system, most of the wealthiest people in the galaxy were human. Even though there were few aliens here and there, it seemed as if those few other species in Earth elite were more for show. Even though the system was open to all, it favored humans and those who were born into it. The fake docking papers were accepted by the Port Authority, and they were cleared to pass through the blast sphere. It was hard to not feel uncomfortable as they passed through a swarm of satellites that could vaporize their ship in seconds. Cal pulled up the interface for the prototype ship just to confirm it was still on Earth, even though she had checked several times before their arrival. She wanted to check some more. Sealard's worst fears didn't come true once they had passed the solar system boundary. After they decided to put implants in the rest of the crew, he thought the Touristicue would detect the devices as soon as they were inside the blast sphere. Maker had assured him several times it wasn't true. A crew member with an implant will only transmit data when they want. Also, the data is encrypted, so if someone did intercept the signal from the implant, they wouldn't know what the signal meant. The other component to their safety was that because the intergalactic network transmitted so much data, stumbling on one signal in the trillions of floating through the network was near impossible. Because of the information that traveled from one end of the galaxy to the other in an instant, the infinite number of packets of information could travel at the same time. Since every being on every technological planet had several devices interacting with that network at once, the chance of stumbling on her signal in the swarm of data was slim, and then breaking the encryption was even slimmer. However, despite the misgivings of Seular, the rest of the crew decided to get the implants. The pain Hayden experience seemed like it was worse for the crew. It was like the implant had to learn their alien physiology. So the seizure-like state lasted for much longer than with Hayden. Grand Ork was the only one who didn't seem to be affected all that much by the installation. His eye twitched once or twice, and then he said, It is complete. For Cal, it was painful, but nothing then more painful than what Dr. Fessler did to her in prison. If prison was good for one thing, it taught her that she had a higher tolerance for pain than even she thought she had. Once the crew had their implants, she offered Seular the chance to do it one more time. He said that he'd wait until they were all aboard the prototype. The rest of the crew used simulations that Hayden discovered to learn how 
to do their various posts. Maker gave the implant to Cal that was designed for the captain. One interesting thing that she noticed right away was that she could see what her crew was doing at any given time and override them. She decided to only use that feature in desperate times, as trust and privacy seemed to be the key to keeping people together on her long space flights. Hayden flew towards Pluto's Sputnik Plandum, where they would land in a large spaceport. There, a crew would inspect and register their vessel. All ships were required to land and go through inspection. Had her mission been truly been trading science information, she would have ordered Maker to hide the key elements of his experiments. Sometimes dirty port authorities' inspectors would steal secrets of vessels, especially when it's easy as downloading the information during a routine inspection and collecting the money themselves. Regular science vessels would always delete critical selections of their most valuable experiments. However, most of the science that Maker did with his spare time was for his curiosity and not worth much. The inspector coming to the vessel would think of them as a bunch of inexperienced kids with eyes bigger than their ability to produce. They, had they been a knowledgeable trading vessel, they would have left Earth sorely disappointed. Their cover was easy to maintain, because Maker did have experiments and information they could register. The story also contrived a good reason for staying on Earth for a long time and traveling around the planet. Science traders could spend months, even years, negotiating deals. Not only would they travel around looking for the highest bidder, sometimes they would get hired as a consultant for a first-run production or they would find an independent factory and attempt to sell their discovery themselves. Either way, if they made somewhat of an effort to sell their knowledge wherever their research for the ship would take them, the authorities wouldn't bat an eye. Their ship touched down on a long silver landing platform. A white buggy with a group of three humans waited for them on the tarmac. Similar buggies waited for other ships on the landing as well. A touristic mech patrolled Pluto's surface in the background. The buggy connected to a tube to their airlock, and a couple of men climbed aboard with green Port Authority jumpsuits. A bored-looking man in his fifties approached Cal. She smiled, laughed, and shook his hand. She felt fake while greeting him, but Hayden had assured her that giggling makes her look young and inexperienced. They had to play the part of a young Cytronite team ready to take on the universe. I'm Inspector 5221, the man said in a bored, dry tone. I'm here to assist you with the proper tariff procedures. Before we start, are you carrying anything hazardous as defined by Section 43, Code 435 of the Soul Free Trade Agreement? He launched into a series of questions designed to protect the population of the solar system as if terrorists would openly admit to hiding a bomb on board. After all the questioning had been done, his two companions pulled out handheld scanners and proceeded to scan the ship. Maker went over some of the data and samples with the inspector. The inspection went off without a hitch because they didn't have anything to hide. The unused implants were buried in a forgotten moon in a devoid system not too far from Earth. While there were ways to smuggle objects past the Port Authority, it was a risk they didn't need to take since enough of them had implants already installed to pilot the ship. The inspector was clean because he didn't even try and steal Maker's data. Even Seular couldn't find anything to worry about. Once they were clear from the inspection, they were given clearance to make the trek to Earth. 
Hayden was quiet when he looked out of the window because he hadn't been back to Seoul in a long time. Cal could tell that he was deep in thought as he watched the planets go by past the view screen. The outer gas giants had been stripped of their atmosphere and their decrend at their rocky cores long ago, where Jupiter, Saturn, and Neptune, and Uranus should have been, were rocky leftovers and derelict mining stations, and a few skeleton stations for, for businesses that managed to stick around after the mines ran dry. However, most of the outer moons and the planets were cannibalized long ago. The poorest of the poor dug through the remnants and eked out a living among the forgotten space stations from a dead economy. The inner planets were a different story. While the asteroid belt was also a thing of the past as it was mined out of existence, Mars, Earth, and Venus were alive and teeming with life. More accurately, they were a trio of planets with giant cities spanning every inch of their surface. Long ago, when the gas giants disappeared due to mining, the orbital paths of the inner planets were at risk because the entire system was balanced. Remove Jupiter and all the planets may fall out of sync. Since most humans didn't want Earth to fall into the sun or get thrown from the solar system, they devised methods to correct the orbital paths of the planets in case they needed an adjustment. It was natural, then, to adjust the orbital path of Mars to bring it a little closer to the Sun and bring Venus a little further out. Cooling down Venus helped terraform the planet, correcting the magnetic field of Mars, destroying the atmosphere, and giving it a little extra bit of warmth helped Mars harbor life so they didn't have to live under a dome. Soon, Sol had three habitable planets. While Venus and Mars did preserve a little more park and green space than Earth from the megacities, it was still green space that was completely manufactured from every tree to every bug. Mercury was the only untouched planet left, as it was too hot to mine cost-effectively, and later protected through solar system preservation societies that lost the effort to protect the other gas giants. They flew past Mars and saw the lights of the tower that was built out of Olympus Mons and headed towards Earth. Soon, the pale blue dot turned into a bright bulb of activity as the megacities lit up almost every landmass on Earth. There were also many floating cities in the oceans and too many space stations to count. It looked as if every part of Earth's surface was covered. There were tiny black speck among the wash of lights of North America. Hayden knew that it was the Colorado wilderness that he loved. They set down in the Albuquerque spaceport, the large desert areas of the planet were one of the few places with large enough plots of unused land when humans began building spaceports. A lot of the original spaceports hadn't changed in ages because there wasn't room to expand. Most spaceports were surrounded by city structures and all ships had to take off and land vertically. Earth's spaceports were also so small and over capacity that sometimes the incoming ships would wait a half a day just to land on Earth. There were plenty of orbital parking garages for ships like Cal's. However, she was taking so many risks already, she'd rather wait in line and know that the ship was on the ground with her than have to rely on a commercial shuttle to get back into orbit. The safety feature of the plan was that until the night of the heist, they could abort at any time and leave Earth with nothing. Cal wanted to make sure that could be a quick getaway, if needed. However, quick was a relative term on Earth. Once they landed, their ship would be stored in a structure near the port. 
However, unlike the orbital garages, she could walk into her ship at any time without a shuttle. Landing on Earth would come at a price, but it was well worth the fees for the convenience of having your ship accessible. After they landed in, the Al in Albuquerque, a large robotic arm picked up their ship and they were placed on a conveyor belt bound for an above-ground parking skyscraper. Once they were at their designated hangar, another arm lifted their ship and dropped it off inside. Hayden was the first one down the ladder. He breathed in the air and Cal waved a communal coin chip card and the fees were deducted from the account. The door to their larger hangar was DNA locked to her and her crew. Arrows appeared in her field of vision, directing her way out of the structure. I see arrows, Grenork said. Interesting, Maker said. Our implants must be connected to the galactic network. It looks like we should be able to see shared data points from the cloud, access the feeds, and interact with anyone with normal implants. Normal implants, Cal said. Sometimes growing up in a small farming village had its disadvantages. There were some concepts no one ever bothered to explain to her because people just assumed she knew. Like using the coin chip cards. She never really used money before, so when she had shoplifted a piece of fruit from a fruit stand without knowing that she was stealing, Hayden had to pay for her purchase. He then explained to her how money worked. Food with her people was shared by all. Her village would feed anyone who wanted food, even travelers. The concept of paying with money, even requiring money for food, was ludicrous to her. She, even in prison, she didn't pay for food, so it was natural for her to assume baskets of fruit in a marketplace were for all to consume. Now, here she was, at another crossroads of her upbringing and knowledge. She had thought the implants were some sort of new technology. The thought-controlled spaceship was this was the new part. The implants had been around for a while on Earth. People could get them installed, and they served the same purpose that handheld devices did in the past. People would use them to access data, connect with friends and family, pay for purchases, and even play games. With the multiple-use implants had been the day-to-day -day life of the average citizen, it was no wonder why the military innovated them to control a spaceship. However, Cal later learned that the citizen implants were less painful and the patient was given drugs to keep them unconscious during installation. They followed the arrows to the street outside and as soon as she was clear of the building, ads popped up everywhere in her field of view. Signs would hover over restaurants displaying the specials. Disembodied's head would chatter about how much they could save. Arrows would appear on the sidewalk to show her what direction to walk for a deal. Ads would appear in the sky overhead. It was also overwhelming. She willed them all away and they disappeared all at once. Albuquerque was a small city of 30 million people. Each block seemed to have skyscrapers touching the sky. Cal could see a mountain poking through the towering buildings. From the looks of it, the mountain was pretty well covered in structures too. They walked through the city until they found a hotel room that could fit all of them, since non-Earth species made up roughly 20% of the residents and almost half of the travelers to Earth, rooms for non-human-sized families were standard. Once inside the room, Maker did a quick sweep for any listening or video devices. While they didn't expect anyone to be actively listening to them, they couldn't be too careful. 
The room itself had a big circular common area with a bath in the middle and doors for single bedrooms at regular intervals. It was large enough for each of them to have their own chamber. While the beds were too small for Grinork, he hated soft surfaces anyway and preferred the floor in most circumstances. They were all sat on the circular couch surrounding the bath with an entertainment council hovering above them. Maker began to outline the plan for locating the vessel. Since Cal discussed the plan with great length with Maker on their way to Earth, she tuned out the discussion and looked towards the window of the hotel room. The mountain in the distance was breathtaking. Cal had grown up in a forest with hills. She'd never seen something as striking as a mountain. She was sad that all of the natural beauty was replaced with civilization, and the natural landscape was dwarfed by the megastructures of the city. The view did little to relax her growing sense of doubt. The strange part for her was that she had never had doubts before. When she was masterminding the prison bake or other post-missions, she had every confidence that they would work. Looking back, her prison break was sloppy, impulsive by comparison to the fastidious planning of her current mission. She was careful to weigh all the options, consult the crew, and run simulations from the computer. However, despite proceeding slowly and carefully, the doubt seemed to grow and grow. She didn't understand why. All she knew was that she understood something wasn't right. There was a sense of dread that she couldn't that didn't seem to exist before. It was the worst possible time for her to break down. But she couldn't help but feel it the deeper they got, the closer she came to the edge. Normally, the sweeping views helped her forget her worries, even if it was just for a moment. However, the vastity of Earth did little to comfort her. She was the home world of Mackie Arnick, and she knew, somewhere on this planet, that she would encounter him again. All right, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll just go ahead and uh, pick this up for next time. Uh, yeah, I, I'm glad you're going with me on this journey. There's way more to come. We're actually, not, we're barely touching the surface of the story, to be honest, guys. Like, like each of these in, individual stories, like this is the fourth one in the series, and each of them kind of get longer and longer from here on out. So we, we have a pretty long stories. Not the first three were kind of short, but these, you know, next uh, there, there's eight and all so far the next ones are, are are pretty long for each one so uh yeah uh enjoy the ride and hopefully i'll have story nine ready by the time i get to finish reading story eight but i, I don't know if i'm going to get to 10 before i'm done reading so uh all right thank you for listening and have a great night